come to a very heavy passage um, in the book of Romans. So let's seek the Lord's help as we do this right now. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word read to us. And we ask, dear Lord, that you would give us open eyes and open hearts to receive. Uh, Father, may you, in your kindness, encourage us, challenge us, and rebuke us if necessary for the glory of your name and for our good. We recognize that your word comes both as a comfort and a challenge. And we ask, dear Lord, that you would please uh, do that today. And we thank you that you love us. And we ask, dear Lord, that we will come with a posture of humility. Uh, would you please, in your kindness, remove any uh, spiritual, material, physical, or emotional distraction from us, that we may come face to face with what you have to say to us today. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, we're continuing in our series in the book of Romans, um, and we are starting off once again in Romans 1, verses 18 to 23. Um, and as you keep the Bibles open, I want to begin with this question to you. Do you ever feel like God is holding out on you? Do you ever feel like God is holding out on you? By that I mean, do you ever feel that God is withholding good things from you today? I ask because that is a surprisingly common feeling. It's the reason we often think, feel, and act in particular ways, right? For example, if I feel like God is withholding good things from me, then I will go out of my way to get it, regardless of cost, means, or consequences, do you feel like God is holding out on you? You know, this question is actually one of the reasons why I think many people find it hard to trust in Jesus. And the reason why many people find it hard to begin a journey of faith. Many people feel like following Jesus and becoming a Christian is to give up on good things and then to live a cold, sad, and dreary life. I've actually spoken to some people who say to me, look, I think that Christianity is good, salvation is good, heaven is good, Jesus is great, but I'm not ready to give things up for that just yet. Let me do my own thing first, and then later on I'll come to church and become a Christian when I'm ready to give things up. Have you ever felt that way? Do you still think that way? That's really interesting, isn't it? Because built into that idea is the assumption that becoming a Christian means that God will withhold good things from us. That following Christ is to settle for second best. That trusting in God with all of our lives means giving up that which will give us joy and happiness. Today, we come to a passage which shows us that the opposite is actually true. Following Jesus is to actually have the best rather than second best. And the good news today is that God is not holding out on us. God is not holding out on you. One of the ways we know that God is absolutely not holding out on us is because on the point one, we see God is not withholding information from us. God is not withholding information from us. Our pastor starts Romans 1.18, which says that God's wrath, God's anger is revealed from heaven against all of humanity. And that is because people suppress the truth. And so verses 19 to 20 tells us how that truth is suppressed. Read along with me. It says, since what I've been known about God is made plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. You see, very simply, church, God has made information about himself accessible and available to us. And more specifically, notice with me in verse 19, God has made plain to humanity his identity. He's made plain who he is. Now, by make plain, the passage means make obvious. Church, God is not hiding in the shadows waiting for us to find him. 
There is no divine hide and seek or divine peekaboo. God has not left clues around the world waiting for us to decipher some code like the Da Vinci Code in order to understand who He is. God isn't a mystical being waiting for special priests or magicians to make Him accessible. No, our passage tells us God has shown Himself plainly and obviously. And a word that is sometimes used in relation to this is revelation. God has revealed Himself. How does he do that? Well, the rest of the verse says that God does this by making himself visible. Verse 20 says he has made his invisible, so unseen qualities, plain, invisible, knowable, and a discernible way. In other words, there is no guesswork. There are clear evidences for God in the universe, and our passage tells us we know the creator through his creation. We know the Creator through His creation. The world in which we live, the world which we can see, smell, touch, taste, and hear are visible expressions of an invisible God. And of course, it doesn't get more visible than that, does it? We're talking about the world and the universe that we live in. That's why verse 20 continues by saying that people have clearly seen and understood what has been made. It has been made clear. There is a clarity to God's revelation of himself to us. Now, some people describe this as what is sometimes known as the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Sounds very complicated, doesn't it, right? But it's actually very simple. The argument states that creation points to a creator. It's as simple as that. And so as certain as we are that the universe exists, so too we can be certain that God has created and caused all of this to be. And there is a simplicity and fluency to this argument that many find satisfying. There is clarity, isn't there? Every cause must have an effect. That's logic. Uh, Some people say that this is exactly what the Greek philosopher Aristotle was trying to get at in his description of what he calls the uncaused or the first cause. And if you heard that and you're excited, come talk to me afterwards and we'll explore a little more. But the point here is clear, isn't it? God is not withholding information from us. Through the creation, the world in which you and I live, God has made plain, made visible and made clear. Now, as we read this, there's a big part of us that gets it, doesn't it? Have you ever had an experience of staring out into a mountain range or the horizon of a beach or the details of a flower or a snowflake and you think to yourself, wow, there must be a God. Or or at least there is something or someone out there that there has to be something more transcendent than what I am observing right now. This is actually... I think a big part of the reason why people, Christians and non-Christians like, catch what they call the travel bug, right? You know, they want to go to different parts of the world just to explore. And I've heard people tell me that some of these trips were like a sort of divine and transcendent and religious experience. These are not Christians who are talking about this, right? Transcendent religious experience. And I want to say that I get that. You know, there are moments that make you pause and you start asking real questions about life and meaning and purpose. It's by standing in the vastness of creation that we begin to sense how small we are. It's then we begin to ask some questions like, what if there is more out there? What if I am not the center of the universe? What if there is a greater story, a greater plan, a greater purpose? And what if I get to be a part of that? Uh, Marketers sell this as soul-searching trips for a good reason, right? But you see, by creation, I'm not just talking about nature. I'm talking about other aspects of creation as well. You know, there are moments when we feel sacrificial love that, that just feels out of this world, when we marvel at beauty so transcendent, when, when even logic seems divine. We, we know this in our heart of hearts. In fact, friends, it takes more faith to disregard and to discard this. It takes more faith to ignore it. One Bible commentator says, it's like trying to immerse a beach ball underwater. Have you had that experience before? 
You can try your very best to push it down, right? But the truth of God inevitably surfaces and confronts us. That's why verse 20 ends by saying, people are without excuse. They know the God who has made himself plain, visible, and clear. Yet rather than worshiping the creator, they've turned to worship other things instead. And that's very interesting, isn't it? Because at the very core, you and I turn to other things other than God because we assume or believe that God is withholding satisfaction from us. Because we assume or believe that God is withholding satisfaction from us. Come to point two as we read verses 21 to 23. It says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, aren't these verses fascinating? Romans 1, 21 to 23 shows us that our failure to believe is not because we lack revelation or information about God. Rather, we fail to believe because of sin, because of the hardness of our hearts. It's not because we do not have information. The preceding verses made that clear, hasn't it? And you see, all of God's creation is meant to move and excite us to glorify and to worship God. But instead, we engage in what can only be described as foolish and futile settling for crumbs. Uh, We do this through a series of three exchanges. It's in your verses. Verses 21 to 23 says we exchange God for goods. So rather than glorifying God and giving thanks to Him, we give God in exchange for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, and reptiles. Now, that expression there, you can underline that in your Bibles, right? The expression images made to look like human animals and all that. That's the language of idolatry. It's worshipping or admiring something other than the true God of the universe. Now, now when you and I think of image, we think of picture. We think of a photo. But image here actually more broadly means the likeness of something or a copy of something. So that's why we think of images, right? Your passport image is a copy of you. But, but it's not just a picture. It could be a physical replica as well, like a statue or a busk or, or anything that resembles the source. You can go to QVB and you can look at the statue right in front of it and you can say that's an image of Queen Victoria. Why? Because it is shaped and fashioned after her. Or sometimes you look at a child, right, out back. There's a bunch of them. And then you look and, and, you, and you see and then they look and they behave just like their parents, right? And then you tend to say, oh my goodness, you are a splitting image of your mom and your dad. We say that a child is a splitting image of their parents because they come from their parents. We never say that a parent is a splitting image of their child. It doesn't make sense, right? An image points to the source. Now, I want you to come back to Romans 1 with me. Our passage is telling us that humans know God in creation, but rather than worshiping Him, the source, they go on to worship idols, images of creation. Do you notice something right there? They don't even worship images of the Creator, They worship images of creation. That's one step further removed. Do you see that? The point here is to show human folly, but it's also to show us how sin hardens our hearts. We are so bent on rebelling against God, we won't even worship images of the Creator. We take one further step away to worship images of His creation and friends. Isn't that just our common experience? That sin blinds our desires and blinds us from our decisions. There is a deep irrationality to sin so that even though something is made plain and obvious to us, we are still driven by our sinful rebellion against God. 
To know something is wrong is one thing, but to know it's wrong and to insist on it is a whole new level, isn't it? This helps us to understand verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed. There is a reason behind this. And so God revealed himself, but rather than worshiping God, we worship goods instead. We turn good things into God things. We take really good things in the case of Romans 1, like human beings, like birds and animals and reptiles. How could all this ever be bad? They're part of God's good creation, aren't they? It's just that we turn them into objects of worship. They become our idols. Church, today we take really good things like relationships and career and money and health and hobbies and vacations. We, we, good things. And we turn them into God by worshiping them. You see, to worship means to consciously or subconsciously turn to these things and say, you define me, you are the reason I live, or without you I am nothing. And you know these are the things you worship when when they're taken away from you, your life crumbles. When someone disappoints you in one of these areas, your, your life falls apart. That's how you know you're worshiping that thing. Rather than seeing them as gifts that points us to the Creator, we settle for created things instead. We think that these are the things that give us the satisfaction that we're after. You know, it totally makes sense that God is angry about this. God's anger is a reflection of His righteousness. Because of His justice, you and I get furious at injustice, don't we? When we see the news and a criminal gets let go, we're not even affected by it, but we are furious. The God who knows all and sees all and creates all, don't you think that he too is right to be furious at injustice? You know, his anger is also a reflection of his love. You and I get angry when we are betrayed. Isn't that true? When someone you love and you care for turn their backs against you and betray you. We get it. We don't like to talk about God's wrath because we feel like it's so negative. But don't you see, His wrath is so connected to other positive attributes. God has given us all that we need and instead we turn our backs against Him. Church, don't you see, we do this when we think that God is withholding satisfaction when we think that God is withholding good things from us. But verses 21 to 23 also tells us that we exchange wisdom for foolishness. Wisdom for foolishness. Because you see, rather than walk in the way of wisdom, in the knowledge of God, rather than glorifying God and giving thanks to God, our passage tells us our thinking became futile and our foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, we exchanged and became fools. Uh, This here is the deep irrationality that I was speaking of. And church, listen very closely. We must not underestimate how much sin distorts our minds and our thinking and our rationality. Uh, We often speak of sin impacting our hearts, our affections, what we love. That is certainly and absolutely true. Uh, But the Bible also speaks of sin impacting our cognition, how we think. So that while we are able to rationalize and apply rules of logic, we do not, because of sin, think as clearly as we ought to. In the Bible, I want to be clear that there is a difference between the effects of sin and the effects of the fall. Now, if you have your own outlines, you can draw just two categories. I want to clarify, right? The effects of sin and the effects of the fall. Let's speak of the effects of the fall first. The effects of the fall are the realities of living in a broken world where our bodies don't function as they ought to, where our minds don't operate as they should. That's the effects of the fall. A very clear example of this is is someone who may have a cognitive disability and cannot even understand the basics of one plus one or cannot tell the difference between up and down. That person is not suffering because of personal sin, That person is suffering because of the effects of the fall in creation. They haven't done, said, or thought anything that has rendered them incapable of understanding. Listen carefully. In terms of fall, it is not their personal fault. 
And in circumstances such as these, we grieve the fact that we live in a broken world where cognitive disability is a reality. And we long for an eternal destiny where the effects of the fall will be reversed and renewed and there will be no more. Uh, What's more, we know that God is gracious and compassionate upon friends and family who suffer from debilitating effects of the fall. And so we, we have actually biblical and theological grounds to be confident in their salvation, even if they cannot understand or express or articulate the faith in ways that we would want them to. God is gracious and compassionate, right? But I want you to notice this is not what Romans 1 is talking about. Our passage here is not speaking of people who are limited by the fallenness of the world. In fact, it's not even speaking of those who have physical limitations like age and IQ and level of education. Romans 1 is speaking of the effects of sin, It is speaking of how our minds do not comprehend as we ought to because of our desire to turn our backs against God, because of our rebellion against Him, because of our unwillingness to submit to Him so that we know what we know and yet we refuse to entrust ourselves to God. We see God in creation and rather say, thank you, God. We we say, you know what? I could have done that. Oh, I could have done better than that. We see God in Scripture, and rather than say, God, I trust you and your plans and purposes for me, we look and we say, you know what, I don't believe it. And friends, don't you see, we will continue doing this if we believe that God is withholding satisfaction from us. That's what Romans 1 is saying. Uh, Thomas Cranmer, the, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, says this in your outlines. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Church, listen very closely. We are driven by sin more than we realize. There is a conscious unwillingness to express gratitude to God, and so we exchange wisdom for foolishness. We will keep doing this if we think that God is holding out on us. Which is why, thirdly, we exchange satisfaction for second best. Uh, Now, a lot of this will be expanded next week as we look at verses 24 onwards. And it gets kind of spicy from there because we are looking at biblical sexual ethics. And all the teenagers just looked up right there, right? Ooh, yeah. Uh, But you see, the big idea is still here in verses 18 to 23. The principle remains the same, don't you see? We sin because we do not believe that God has something better for us. Isn't that true? We lie and manipulate to get intimacy because we cannot imagine that God could have a better plan for us. We steal because we think that God is holding out on us. And we settle for second best and we say that the ends justify the means. We harden our conscience Because we think this is as good as it gets. I would not hesitate to say at the heart of every sin is a conscious or unconscious belief that this is as good as it gets. And church friends, don't you see that what this fails to recognize is firstly, we deserve more. You deserve more. And it also fails to recognize that the so-called more and better is exactly what God promises. Rather than have God, we just take the goods. It's just like eating crumbs off the floor, not believing or not wanting to believe that there could possibly be bread on the table. We just need to look up. The irrationality and foolishness of sin is thinking that the crumbs is as good as it gets and to insist on it and to say that anyone who says otherwise is foolish. Friends, I want us to notice something. God is not withholding satisfaction from you. He wants you to have a life, life to the full, but sometimes we are the fools who are getting in the way. That's why the sermon is titled, Be Careful What You Wish For, because more often than not, what we wish for 
is not enough. Don't you see? What we want is satisfaction, but we are happy to settle for something that just looks like it. What we want is fulfillment and joy, but we are willing to settle for the shadows. It's almost like we can't imagine something better. Now, church, the good news today is that we don't have to imagine. God has shown us. He's offering the very best to you. The good news is we don't have to imagine what it looks like. Come to the third and final point with me. God is not withholding redemption from us. Don't you see, our entire passage begins by saying that God's wrath is revealed, that God is prepared to punish the world for its godlessness, wickedness, and suppression of the truth. That's verse 18. If you have a look at the Venn diagram on your outlines, and I'm so sorry about the printing error. It's as clear as my sermon, right? But, but if you just imagine it with me. You'll see that the suppression of the truth comes from both ignorance and arrogance. Ignorance and arrogance. Ignorance not knowing and arrogance not caring. But you see, both of these are no longer excuses, are they? God has made himself known so we are not ignorant. God has made his goodness known, which ought to produce humility, but it leads to arrogance instead. And so those who are on the receiving end of God's wrath know exactly why. There is no confusion to our conclusion. We sin either because we are ignorant of the truth or we are arrogant against the truth. Friends, today as we study verses 18 to 23, no one in this room, if you're paying attention, can claim ignorance anymore. And if you stand against Jesus today, the bad news is you are on the path of destruction. And that is so important to recognize, isn't it? It is so common to think that it is okay to be indifferent about the Christian faith. It is so popular to think that we can sit on a fence or stand at a distance and judge God and wait for Him to prove Himself. But anyone who has sat on the fence knows, on a literal fence, knows that that is the most uncomfortable position you can find yourself in. There is no fence sitting in the Christian faith. We now know enough God's word comes as a judgment to us today. That we are all sinners in need of a savior and his name is Jesus. How will we respond? Further suppression of the truth or submission to the truth? Because while the bad news is that we are all without excuse because God has given us information and satisfaction, the good news is that God has also given us redemption. He has not withheld it. Because Romans 1, 18 to 23 is built off Romans 1, verse 16. Right? Just, just look up your Bibles a little bit more. It says the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. The gospel, the good news, is that God came to be with us so that we can be with God. Right? The good news is that we can all be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ and church. God shows himself most clearly in Jesus. He offers satisfaction most fully in Jesus. Jesus is the climax of all that God has in store for us. And so we say in Christ, your redemption is sealed. His perfect righteousness can be yours if you trust in him. And friends, it's important to recognize that the concepts of redemption and salvation are not just spiritual categories, right? You often think of it that way. There's just ideas, religious ideas. They're not just about eternal life, heaven, and reconciliation with God. It's all of that for sure. But, but I want you to realize that redemption is surprisingly an applied doctrine as well. The entire book of Romans shows us that redemption is a lived reality. And next week, we're going to look at how it plays out in the realm of sexuality. But, but even that is significant, isn't it? Christians don't believe in salvation and redemption to escape the world. We believe in it because it shapes the way we live in the world. Uh, you see, 
the point I want to make today about redemption is that redemption in Christ enables us to live more fully and humanly today. Redemption in Christ enables us to live more fully and humanly today because you see, what sin does is that it darkens our hearts so that we constantly long for the wrong things or we long for the right things wrongly. But trusting in Christ for salvation means forgiveness from that so that we now long for God and everything else begins to recalibrate. Uh, But trusting in Christ also means the restoration of our longings and desires, a, a recovery of our minds, a renewal of our wills. It sets us on a path of flourishing so that we are not running against the grain of our design. Friends, trusting in Jesus is not just about escaping God's wrath. Significantly, it is about entering into a new life by God's grace. And that's what it means to have punishment repealed. Uh, Because you see, the wrath of God is presented before us today. But the promise of the gospel is also laced all throughout these verses. Don't you see, the fact that God has made himself plain that His power and nature can be seen. All of these are signs of God's grace, that God has not given up on us. I want to conclude with a few points of reflection. Firstly, the fact that God is not holding out on us should cause us to slow down and see. Slow down and see. More specifically, to slow down and to see the ways that God is revealing His power, goodness, and provision over our lives. Now, I think it's very important to recognize that God's general revelation through creation is not enough for us to know God for salvation, right? Everyone needs to hear the message of redemption and salvation in Christ. Romans 1.16 makes that abundantly clear. It's not just good enough to know that there is some God out there. Theism is not good enough. They need to profess Christ as He is presented in the Bible. Yet I also believe that Romans 1, 18-20 also makes the point, we must not dismiss, that God's creation stirs our longing for the Creator. And it's not just nature, as I mentioned, it's everything else as well, right? The relationships we have, the careers we have, the church we're in, the goods we possess. Church, I hope we see that this is actually the foundation that enables us to begin enjoying things properly. I hope you see that the enjoyment of things can actually be an act of worship. Worship is not just what we do on Sundays when we sing, when we enjoy God's gifts as that which comes from God Himself, when we glorify and give thanks to Him, that becomes an act of worship. God is not withholding good things from us. He gives these things to stir us, to worship Him and to glorify Him. And so... We can actually slow down in the midst of our crazy, busy lives and see all that He has given to us. I'm, I'm, I'm going to speak about gratitude in just a moment. For most of the time, we are not grateful because we do not see. We do not see the family that God has given to us and all the beauty that's there. We're so busy rushing from one place to another, seeking for happiness. We wouldn't even know when we've tripped over it. That's how busy we are, aren't we? We're so busy with our careers that we rush in and to from it and we begin hating it, failing to recognize that too is a gift from God. Our church, here is a call to slow down and see all that God has given. And the way that that transforms into worship, as I alluded to before, is to glorify with gratitude. Our enjoyment of God's gifts can be an act of worship if we receive it and glorify God through with gratitude. You see, the rest of the world takes God's good gifts and says, I earned this, I got this for myself, or it says, I deserve it. And friends, make no mistake, there is certainly a sense in which that is true. 
The Bible never discounts human effort, but the Bible recognizes that human effort is built upon the foundation of God's provision and providence. Think about it. Everything we have comes from the Lord. Now, you may say to me, you know what, Mr. Preacher, I worked hard to get to where I'm at. But I'm confident that I can point to 10 other people who work just as hard, maybe even harder than you, but still have a different outcome. I find it so frustrating, right? When people go around and saying, all you got to do is hustle. Just hustle and you'll get it, right? Just hustle. You just got to give things up, right? And I want to say, I know a mother in India who hustles 10 times harder as you. But she's got a different outcome. You're going to tell the difference is hustle? Everything we have comes from God. Every ability that you have, the circumstances you're surrounding yourself with, they are all gifts of God's grace, whether you are a Christian or not. What's very interesting about gratitude is that there's actually a deep impulse to do this, isn't there? There is this thing called the gratitude movement. It's online. Look it up. Right? It's fascinating. You can buy a box for $100 USD, and that box comes with a journal, six wristbands, and two sunglasses, free shipping on all orders, 30 back money guarantee. And they promise that this gratitude box will help you become more grateful in life. And today, I want to say to you, for an easy 30 Australian dollars, I can give you the same thing, right? No, no. It's an entire movement trying to move a generation to be more grateful. Now, why is gratitude important, though? They claim that gratitude is the easiest way to be happy. They claim it's the quickest way to have peace. They claim it makes our hearts conscious of the treasures that we have. There is a study by Harvard University which says that gratitude helps people feel more positive emotions, helps people to relish their good relationships. It improves their health. It enables them to deal with diversity. It helps them to build stronger relationships. These are not Christian sources speaking of the same thing. And it's just interesting, right? That all of these worldly philosophies feel the need to invite people to step outside of themselves and to be grateful for something apart from themselves. Interesting, isn't it? By why aren't more people grateful? Why aren't all of us walking around with gratitude? You see, gratitude is not a quality that can be expressed in isolation. It's like love, right? You can't just say, I am a loving person. Take my word for it. The only way you can know whether someone is truly loving is by seeing if they love someone, right? To say I am loving in isolation is meaningless. It's the same. Gratitude is meaningless if there is no one or nothing to be grateful for or to. And there is a foolishness that comes from seeking to be grateful in a godless and autonomous worldview. It's taking all the practices prescribed in Scripture but stripping of its core. But as we slow down and see that all that God has given to us, you and I as Christians who recognize God as creator can receive and glorify God to make much of God and show God to be the greatest treasure by receiving it with gratitude. God is not holding out on us. He is not withholding good things. He wants us to receive these good things, but more importantly, to receive him as Lord and God. Lastly, I want to encourage us to receive with repentance. And there are three kinds of receiving based on three audiences that I think our passage speaks of today. Firstly, if you are not a Christian, if you've never expressed faith in Jesus, I want to invite you today to receive Jesus as your Lord and your God. 
you may be thinking, oh, I come to church a lot, right? Like, isn't that enough? And there's a sense in which, yeah, it is. But at the same time, as we examine Scripture, we recognize a need to personally respond in faith by repenting of our sinful ways. Repenting of the ways that we've broken God's law and betrayed God's love. And, and today, I want you to recognize that forgiveness costs you nothing, but it costed God everything. Salvation can be poured out on you because God's wrath has been poured out on Jesus on your behalf. And so if you've never confessed that Jesus is your Lord and your God, I want to invite you to do so today. And I'm going to pray for you at the end of the sermon. And, and today, if that's you, I want to encourage you to maybe even tell someone about it, maybe the friend who's brought you along to church. God is not holding out on you. He wants you to know the true life that is found in him. Wholeness, peace, and joy comes firstly from being right with God, and that can happen today. But secondly, I want to especially challenge Christians today, or, or I want to say people who may be on the edge, not knowing whether you are right with God or not, right? Because here's the thing, in the hardness of your heart, you are continuing to suppress God's truth. And this is a category that I'm not fully sure of, right? Because you know a tree by its fruit. And, and I'm speaking to those people where if we were to examine your fruit, we are not sure what your root is. Uh, these are people that, that know the promises of the gospel. Uh, you know the path of life. You know the expectations. You know what it means to follow Jesus. But, but, but you're resisting it. And you are convinced you are on the right track. Perhaps I can say two things to you. Firstly, you are not on the right track. If you're waiting for a sign from God, here it is in his word, you are not on the right track. If you are living contrary to God's wills and purposes, I can assure you, as God's word says, you and your life will end up in destruction. Your deception, either to yourself or to others, will lead to destruction. Your delay in confession will lead to disillusionment. Your deeds will lead to decay. It will eat away at your soul, and you know it right now. You will find yourself less and less joyful, more and more bitter, and further and further away from God and the people whom you love. That's the nature of sin. It separates us from communion with God and intimacy with people. And you may be hardening your heart right now, even as I speak about it. But <laughs> the harder you push it away, maybe it just shows how much you need to hear this. You can fool people around you with your appearances, but you are not fooling God at all. You are without excuse. But very importantly, here's the second thing I need you to know. It is not too late. You may be in really deep, but I want you to listen in very closely right now. You are never in too deep for God's forgiveness. You are never too far from His grace. God's grace runs deeper and wider than your sin ever could. And now, there will be consequences and ramifications for your actions and attitudes. There will be. But confession now will always be better than confession later, or confession now will always be better than being found out. And it is not too late because God's grace and mercy is being held out to you today. You may be afraid of the consequences of your actions, but what you really ought to be afraid of is being so comfortable suppressing the truth to be able to lie without blinking, to conceal without consequences, to think that you've got everyone fooled. Brother or sister, God cannot be fooled. He is not fooled. And today he's actually saying to you, hey, turn around. That's what repentance means, right? To turn around, to stop heading towards the path of destruction. It's not too late. God is saying, I will rebuild. I will restore. I will renew you. He's saying, son, daughter, come back. 
And, and as a church, I want you to know that we will receive you warmly with no judgment, no condemnation, no criticism at all. Because we are sinners just like you. We men have committed the same sin, but we share the same heart and we also share the same Savior. Our aim is to see you, your relationship with God, and your relationship with others restored. You do not have to pretend like you have it all together. We are a community of sinners who know it and need Christ. Dear brother or sister, make today the day that you repent of your cold heart. Don't walk in darkness anymore. Turn to the light of Christ and and taste and see the beauty and the freedom that comes from that. The third kind of receiving is this. Receive God's gifts, but constantly being aware of our tendency to forget God. I'm speaking probably to the majority of you in this room. In this case, receiving with repentance actually means to consciously build rhythms and habits into your life, maybe even into the life of your family to ensure that gratitude to God remains central. Uh, You know, Christians often say grace, or we pray before we eat, right? Uh, Do you ever feel like it's a bit of a funny activity sometimes, right? Like, um, I, I often laugh that I have this rule, okay? I say that saying grace is only necessary when we're having something that costs more than $5, okay? And let me ask you, right? Did you pray for your coffee this morning? You didn't. It's less than $5, right? You pray before a meal? Why? More than $5, right? I used to not pray before a banh mi, but banh mi is increased in price, so I have to pray now, right? <laughs> it's a joke. It's not a real rule, right? We're meant to give thanks for everything. Uh, but, but that illustrates something, doesn't it? We are prone to forget. That's why it's really good to build rhythms and habits and maybe even symbols that are good for our souls. It's really interesting, right? God instructed the Israelites in Deuteronomy to affix what is called a mezuzah, a piece of parchment um, inscribed with specific Hebrew verses, and they're meant to hang it on your doorposts in their homes. And the design of this is that so that every time people walked in and out of the house, they were to touch the mezuzah as a reminder of the Lord, their God. It's a visible reminder. And if you travel to Israel today, you will still see them in front of many homes. For Christians, that's actually part of the reason why we celebrate Easter and Christmas every year. It's a rhythm, a habit, a symbol that forces us to focus on one aspect of salvation. Uh, But God has also given us a beautiful sign and seal. It's in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, They are occasions for us as a church to remember God's grace towards us. It's the same with church. It it, it pierces the rhythm of our weeks to force us to remember God. Here's a point to ponder for you. What personal rhythm, habits, or symbol can you build into your life or the life of your family to cultivate deeper gratitude for all that God has given to you? Uh, What can you cultivate? Recognizing that God isn't holding out on us actually enables us to do this. And growing deeper gratitude to God is a habit that needs to be cultivated, needs to be worked on to combat the busyness and distractions that we are surrounded with. And so maybe for you, right, it could be something as simple as actually praying and saying grace before your meals, right? And maybe you never do that. Maybe you're too embarrassed to do that publicly. I remember, I, had, I won't tell you who, right, but we're having lunch out. Oh, can you say grace for us? I say, yeah, thank you, Jesus, for the food, amen, yeah. <laughs> so I don't even think God heard that one. Like, can you say, it's, it's not uncommon to feel that way, right? Uh, Let me challenge you, encourage you to publicly show your gratitude to God. Uh, To be unashamed, to say, thank you, God, for the hands that prepared this. Thank you, God, for providing it. Recognizing that the chef may have prepared this, but God provided it. Uh, Could it be that in your small groups, one of the things you ask each other as you share is maybe to ask the question, you know, like, what are some things that you can be grateful to God for this month? It's just a very simple habit. 
And it may be the same thing month after month, but it's just to recall, isn't it? Uh, could it be for dads? Uh, after reading a short portion of the Bible with your kids each night, you, you ask them, you, you, you cultivate, you build this into them, you ask them, right? What can we be thankful to God for today? And you lead your family to pause and to ask that very important question. Uh, what are some symbols you can surround yourself with, right? Maybe, it sounds a bit silly, but it depends on, on your personality, right? Could it be a screensaver on your phone that's going to cause you to just stop every time you check your notifications? Uh, could it be a, a keychain that is connected to your car keys so that you're reminded each time that this too is from God? Could it be a photo frame that you hang on your desk at work or you hang in your practice at work and you remember this job, these clients, they come from God? Could it be a bracelet with the initials of your kids on it to remember that ultimately they belong to God and not to you? You were called to steward them for a season and to grow and nurture them in the Lord. Don't you see, these are good things, but they can so easily be turned into idols and God things for us. But when we receive with gratitude and unto the glory of God, receiving them can become acts of worship. I have a friend whom I met at theological college, and she has this habit where every week, without fail, she will post three things she's grateful to God for on Facebook every week. It's a habit for her. And I always look forward to reading it, right? Because whenever I read it, I pause and ask the same question of myself. What are three things that I can be grateful to God for? This here is a habit that's not just good for her. It's contagious. It reminds us all that God is not holding out on us. It shows us that God actually has the best plan for us. It demonstrates that God wants us to enjoy these things, but rightly. It's a sign that God loves us. So may we, church, receive these things and say, Lord, Use all of these things to stir our longing for you and stir our longings for eternity. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word today that comes to us firstly as a word of judgment, recognizing the state of our hearts and then calling us unto repentance and faith. And we thank you that this call to repentance and faith is possible because you have made yourself known through Jesus and his work of salvation and redemption. So I pray for friends in this room who may have never responded personally to the gospel, uh, but they've decided to do so today. I ask dear Lord that by your spirit, just as you have been working in their hearts already to soften their hearts, would you please continue to grow them as they continue to understand the gospel, and love Jesus all the more deeply. My Lord and God, I also want to pray for uh, some of my brothers and sisters who may be struggling with a hardened heart and that the word of God just falls upon them and it's like just bouncing off a concrete wall. Gracious God, I pray that your word can do what only you can do and that is to penetrate hardened hearts and bring about change. Our Father, no words of man is able to do that. No guilt, no condemnation, no shame can do that. But your word of grace can. And so, Father, I pray that these words will not return empty. And I pray, dear Lord, that for the rest of us as a church, we would continue to grow, to receive with repentance. Recognizing times when we are so prone to receive good things and turn them into God's. Uh, teach us now to receive them and to glorify with gratitude as an act of worship. We thank you that you are not holding out on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.